Well, if you would this morning, let's go back to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We've seen very clearly that the theme of the book of Galatians is our liberty in Christ. We've seen the theme verse is chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Uh, As we say by way of review every time that Paul was passionately writing to these Galatian believers because they had allowed false teachers to come in and pervert the gospel of grace by adding works to salvation. These Judaizers said, sure, you know, Christ is the only way to heaven, but the only way to Christ is through us. You have to become a Jew and keep the Old Testament law before you can become a Christian. Even the Gentile male converts had to be circumcised before they could be saved. And now Paul has spent four and a half chapters uh, defending the gospel of grace, defending justification by faith. And as we've seen very clearly, and this is yet another reason I love preaching through books, could you not see every single week how Paul builds upon his argument, how he, he actually gets out ahead of the Judaizers because he actually asks the question that they're going to ask next. And we've seen him build those arguments. He has absolutely obliterated the arguments of these Judaizers. Salvation and justification have never come by keeping the law. Nobody ever could keep the law. All the law ever did was condemn as far as we're concerned. He has absolutely destroyed it. He's given examples. He's given sound scriptural references. He's given sound logic and reasoning. He has made, him look, he has made the Judaizers look silly. But here in the text today, in the latter part of chapter 4... Paul really begins to shift gears here. And we really begin to see his pastoral heart for these people. You see, Paul wasn't just content with winning an argument. He was trying to win the hearts of these Galatian believers. This wasn't just a Facebook rant for Paul. He wasn't just looking for a mic drop moment where he could walk away with the sunglasses falling down on him. He wasn't looking for that. He he was concerned about these Galatians. He loved these Galatians understand that Paul helped plant these churches. He had led many of these people to Christ. And now he was burdened and confused by the fact that these false teachers had come in and they had just taken it hook, line, and sinker. These, these Judaizers, what they had done is they were serving a, a plate of lies salted with truth. That's how every cult is, by the way. There's always an element to truth in the cults. That's how they lure you in. They They use a lot of the same words that we use, a lot of the same biblical terms and phrases, but they've completely twisted the definitions to mean something totally different than what it actually means. Satan is a master manipulator, and one of his favorite tools is changing language, changing the meaning of words. And so Paul, in this text, he is reminiscing on times past when these Galatians had accepted him and loved him and and accepted his message, the gospel of grace, and now it appears they had become his enemy. This is very personal for Paul. When Paul began his letter to the Galatians, as we saw, one of the very first things he had to do was defend his apostleship. Now, he would have never had to do that unless the Judaizers had discredited him, had slandered him, had torn him down and made it out to where Paul wasn't uh, trustworthy. Don't listen to Paul, listen to us. That's what false teachers always do. And so they had no doubt tore down his character. They had uh, slandered him behind his back. And this was very painful for Paul. In his mind, many of these Galatian believers now looked at him as the enemy. And he is reminding the Galatian believers of their love and fellowship in Christ. He is also warning them about the burden and loss that following this path will lead. We de- I mean, we definitely see Paul, Paul and his pastor's heart coming through here and you know, pastor's heart is a unique thing. I mean, I would say that, you know, the love of a, a parent, the, the love of a mother and a father it, it, to a child is a special kind of love. And I would say that love between husband and wife, that's a special love. But I would say that a pastor's love 
for the congregation is a special thing too. It, it, really, it can be a burdensome thing because, you know, I, I genuinely do care about each and every person here. I love you. I want to see you serving God. I want God's best for your life. And anything that would take away from that, anything that would destroy that, I'm burdened by those things. And, and I'm burdened by the fact that in many cases, maybe you're going through trials or going through a hard time, and I feel bad because I feel like I'm not there enough. I feel like I'm not doing enough or that I never could do enough because, I mean, let's just be honest. In, in some of the deepest, darkest trials we face, there is no human help. It's just not there. Uh, only God can help us in those situations. But, but as I read this text, I mean, I can, I can identify and, and I, I can understand what he's saying and what he's getting at. He is genuinely burdened. For these Galatian believers, he is so hurt by the fact that they have been uh, distracted and they have been confused uh, by adding works to grace and by the false teachings and the burdens that come with that. And, and so with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our text and we'll get into the message. I'll begin in um, chapter 4 and verse 12 and we'll stop at verse 20 today. Uh, but he says, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am. For I am as you are. Uh, you have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected. But received me as an angel of God, or the messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we just thank you for all those that have gathered today and those that are watching online. And God, I just pray that you would just touch every heart this morning, that your Holy Spirit would have uh, complete rule and reign in this place, uh, that you would show us where we fall short, where we are, where we need to be. I pray that Christ would be magnified, that you would just empty me of sin and self. And uh, Lord, if the, there be somebody lost today, that the gospel would go forth with power. If there's somebody burdened down, if somebody is not experiencing the joy of the Lord or the peace and salvation, God, that you would set them free from that today. God, but I pray that preaching would be clear and powerful. And we just give these things to you. Be with those that are sick and couldn't be here. And be with those that are watching at home. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. I want to preach this morning on the thought, the loss of legalism. The laws of legalism. Now, I've been in several church services before where the pastor or the preacher would preface the sermon by saying something like this. Now, I'm going to preach on a very unpopular topic this morning, or everybody is going to be mad at me by the time that I leave here. And I always smile because in my mind, I know what's coming next. They're going to say, I'm preaching against the sin of adultery, or I'm preaching against homosexuality, or I'm, you know, I'm preaching against, uh, you know, fill in the blank. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you're standing in an independent Baptist church. Nobody's going to agree with anything that you're about to say. You're about to get a bunch of amens, and everybody's going to nod their head and agree with you. But I will say this, these kinds of sermons are the kinds where I want to say there's going to be some folks mad and upset, and, and uh, maybe not like some of the things that I say because... We're, we're preaching on Christian liberty this morning, and in order to do that, just like Paul did, we have to talk about the loss and the burdens of legalism. Th these are the kind of sermons that cause me to lose friends. Uh, but it's here and it's biblical, so I'm going to preach it to you if it hair lips the nation. I know you're probably not too shocked by that. But anyway, these are the ones that I get emails about. And so since we're talking about legalism this morning... I think it's very important at the onset that we're carefully defining the terms here. Because I know that in our cliche culture, we tend to take words and kind of just throw them around at everything. And we perhaps don't even grasp what we're really saying. 
And so let's define legalism. Let me say at the onset, I believe there is a ditch on both sides as it, as it pertains to legalism. Um, I know people that on one end, they act as if legalism doesn't even exist. They say, well, the, the word legalism is not even in the Bible, and it's not. Uh, but that argument really doesn't hold water because the word trinity is not in the Bible either. The teaching is clearly there. And so there is definitely legalism in the Bible. Now, I know some people in the other ditch, on the other extreme, they act like everything is legalism. If you have any standards at all, oh, you were just used to legalist. You know, if you have any standards at all in your conduct, language, dress, you know, things that you watch, things that you do, I mean, anything that you just do out of an honest heart to serve God, they look at that and say, well, you're just a legalist. Well, in that case, I like what somebody cleverly said, that a legalist is just somebody that loves God more than you do. So I like that. I understand that. There's a ditch on both sides. And so um, when it comes to the, the biblical uh, definition of legalism, I believe that legalism in the Scripture carries a twofold meaning. I want to be very specific because I think this is very important. I believe, number one, legalism is any teaching that adds works to grace for salvation. That's works on the front end or the back end. So legalism is a teaching that adds works to grace for salvation, and I would be specific and put in parentheses justification. That's what these Judaizers were doing. In order to become a Christian, you have to do X, Y, Z. Very clearly spelled out. That's legalism. Uh, but the, the second aspect of legalism, I believe it's also any teaching that adds works to grace for sanctification. In other words, uh, legalism says that you have to do X in order to get right with God, and or you have to, do, you have to keep doing Y in order to stay right with God. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, the two aspects of legalism say on the front end, you have to do this in order to get right with God. And on the back end, it says you have to keep doing this in order to stay right with God. I believe that is exactly what legalism is. And so with that in mind, let's proceed. Uh, I believe that this twofold meaning of legalism can be found in some of the questions that Paul asks in his line of argumentation here in Galatians. Uh, I, I believe that... Uh, Teaching works for justification can be found in what he says in, in chapter 1, I mean, excuse me, chapter 4 and verse 21. We're going to be there next week. He says, tell me, uh, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? That, that's works for justification. He is addressing that. But then we see the second aspect of this in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, when he says, this only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? That speaks of works for sanctification. He said, well, yeah, you were saved by the Spirit. Are you now keeping yourself saved by the works of the law? That is exactly what he's addressing. And so legalism has to do with teaching works on the front end before salvation or works on the back end to keep salvation or to stay right with God. We're going to see this really clearly. Now, understand that if someone is truly born again, they will bear fruit for the Lord. As I've said, we're not preaching a license to sin here, not in any way, shape, or form. We're not talking about that. We're going to address these issues as we get into chapter 5. Where there is a root of salvation, there will be a fruit of salvation. Uh, it's about our liberty to serve Christ. That's what we're talking about. Now, the law isn't and can't be our motivation for service. Christ is. This is what Christ meant when He spoke of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love thy neighbor as yourself. If you live your life by those two motivations, you're not going to be committing adultery. You're not going to be blaspheming God. You're not going to be stealing. You're not going to be coveting your neighbor. Those things take care of themselves if the heart and the motive is right. The law cannot be a motive in and of itself. You can't look at the law and say, well, I'm going to do this, just check all these boxes. No. Our motivation has to be a love for God and neighbor. And so um, that's not our, the law is not our motive. Uh, we understand that we don't have to work in order to be saved. Christ has saved us to the uttermost, and no man can pluck us out of His hand. Uh, well, like I said, we're going to get more into that into chapter 5. 
But, but let's get into the message today by attempting to answer the, this question. What do we lose if we yield to legalism? If we're fooled by legalism, what are some things that we lose? I've only got two things this morning, and I want to emphasize because we're going to get into this again next week. But um, there's much more to this than the two things that I'm going to talk about, but I believe in the context of what we read this morning, I believe this is Paul's argument here. Now, the first thing that we lose when we buy into legalism is we lose out on some godly relationships, some godly fellowship that would have been great and beneficial to both parties. Look at verse 12 again. He says, Brethren, I beseech you be as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. It's very important to understand he is calling them brethren. He is recognizing them as brothers in Christ. And what he's saying is we're one. He said, I'm not, I'm not holding a grudge against you is what he's saying here. We're one. And he goes on to say, and he's begging them to be as he is. In the, you know, not under the law is what he's saying. Uh, verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at first. And my temptation which was in my flesh you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus, as Christ Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but it appears that when Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, he had some kind of ailment, some sickness. You know, we don't know what it was, but he had to spend some time in this area. And while he was there, he ministered to these Galatians. He saw many saved and helped plant these churches. And, you know, Jewish culture by nature is very, they're very leery of suffering people. And what I mean by that, we've talked about this, how the Jews um, really bought into what I call retribution theology. In other words, if you're sick, you deserve it. Just like uh, even, even the disciples in John 9, when they saw the blind man, by the way, they said, Jesus, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? In other words, what did they do to deserve this? So they were not very, that, that culture was not very compassionate towards sick people, suffering people. And what Paul is saying is, I was suffering, and you didn't hold it against me. You loved me. You brought me in as one of your own. And, you know, we don't know if Paul had some type of problem with his eyes. He does make mention in the book of Galatians that he had to write with large letters so he could see them, is the assumption there. And he is saying here that, he said, you love me so much, at one point in time, you had plucked out your own eyeballs and given them to me, if you thought I needed them. That, that's, that's love and dedication, is it not? He had a special relationship with these people. And yet these Jews, I mean, put yourself in Paul's shoes. Has somebody ever lied about you to somebody else? And that relationship was hindered because of the lies that were told to that person? That's a horrible, sick feeling. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. In your flesh, there's nothing more you want to do than to take them out behind the woodshed and just deal with it. I mean... <clears throat> And God hates, those, God hates bearing false witness. He hates lies. He hates a lying tongue. He hates that stuff. And yet here's what's happened. And Paul feels like he has to reach out to them in their relational capacity and bring them back. <clears throat> um, verse 15, it says, Where is then the blessedness you spake of? What happened to that? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously, now he's talking about the Judaizers. He said, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. Now this word affect is speaking of affection. In other words, Paul is saying that they caused you to fall out of love with me so that you would be loving and affectionate toward them. They would have all of your allegiance. They had all of your dedication. That is occultism 101. It can't be anybody else. It's got to be. It's got to be us. No, you can't talk to them. You can't listen to them. You, no, you, you got to be in our program. And so he, it, this legalism has greatly affected this once godly relationship between Paul and these Galatian believers. What a sad, heartbreaking thing, especially for Paul. And I would say also especially for the Galatians, what could they have learned from Paul? How could they have grown in their faith? I mean, how awesome would it be to say that I know the Apostle Paul personally? 
He writes personal letters to us. I've heard him preach. I've sat at his feet and heard him teach. How many people can say that? And yet this great opportunity was squandered because this relationship was broken because these false teachers had come in and heaped all this legalistic junk on top of them. That's exactly what happened here. And so uh, we can tell by the language that Paul uses here that he believes these Galatians are saved. And obviously, I I say this tongue-in-cheek because he obviously couldn't know every single heart. But as a group, he called them brethren, as I saw in verse 12. But he also called them my little children in verse 19. We're going to look at that in just a minute. So he considers them to be justified and yet immature believers. I think that's an important point to, to, to make Because it is possible for young Christians to get confused by some things, to be bamboozled for a short time. I don't believe any true believer will stay in a situation like that very long, but they can definitely be fooled. I've been fooled by some things. I'm sure that you have too. Um, But I will say in verse 20, he does seem to leave the door open to the possibility that at least some of them are lost, and their reaction to his preaching will be an indicator of their salvation. I don't know if he's being rhetorical, if he's he's trying to really prod their conscience, Uh, but in verse 20 he said, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. In other words, what he's saying is, your reaction to what I'm saying right now is going to go a long way to proving whether or not you're true or fake. And, you know, that is true of any biblical Christian, right? That we would be submissive to the truth when we hear it. And that's what he's challenging them with. Now, this is a really sad text because it seems that the Galatians had allowed the the Judaizers to poison their minds concerning Paul. They loved him so sacrificially at one time, and now they become his enemy, or he has become their enemy, I guess I should say. He certainly didn't feel that way. And, of course, we know that Satan is a slanderer and an accuser of the brethren. And it's amazing how quickly the enemy can turn someone against good Christian people. I'll I'll say this as a general life rule, something I apply to myself, and you'd probably do well to do the same thing. You better be very careful and very slow to believe when you hear good things, bad things about good people. You better be very careful when you hear bad things about good Christian people. And when you hear that, it becomes your responsibility to get to the truth. Whether you have to tell that person, hey, you know what, we... I mean, that's our brother and sister in Christ. If this is true, we need to go talk to them. We need to admonish them. We need to encourage them and perhaps rebuke them or whatever the case may be. But, man, don't just do this behind the... That, there's no good... God's not in that. And I know that, that women often get a bad rap for gospel. And I'm telling you, uh, Baptist pastors and preachers, they're some of the worst gospel folk I've ever seen in my life. But it, and it always starts out like this. Pastor Stonehouse going, no, I'm telling the truth. It always starts by a pastor, preacher calling and said, hey, we need to pray for brother so-and-so. Have you heard? That's how it always starts. And, uh, and, then, it, and then what happens is, is we end up talking for two hours and never praying for them. And so Satan is a slander. He's an accuser of the brethren. And it's amazing how quickly he can turn people against good Christian people. What a shame to lose such a great relationship with a man of God like Paul. And the Judaizers had turned the Galatians against Paul because they wanted their complete devotion and allegiance. And it is extremely likely. Now, when I read this, man, I can just almost put myself in the shoes of these Judaizers. And I know that it's not explicit here, but man, it's so implied that I don't even think it's a stretch of the imagination at all to just think about the arguments they were using against Paul. I mean, think about it. They probably painted Paul out to be a liberal because he had forsaken the teachings of Judaism. Look at that liberal. He doesn't believe you have to follow the law. Hey, that guy didn't even follow Jesus. How is he even a real apostle? You can almost imagine the things they said. And, and so uh, it's interesting, and I really, man, I really want to really drive this home for a second. I find this interesting because... He, Paul asked them the question. He says, have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? Years ago, I heard a preacher on the radio, internet somewhere, I can't remember where it was. But the title of his message was, have I become your enemy? 
And he took this text and he took that phrase, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth. And he was, he, he was pastor of a large church and evidently he had been having some run-ins with some of the church members and he was going to handle it in front of the pulpit. And so for the whole message, every point revolved around this question. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth about fornication? Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth about divorce or told you the truth about sexual immorality or told you the truth about homosexuality and, and all these sins, 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 and all, uh, be honest, some things that weren't even necessarily sinful, they were just his pet peeve, you know? And as I, I got to reading and studying this, I thought that guy took this thing completely out of context because Paul didn't become their enemy for preaching against sin to them and cataloging sin. I'm not saying there's a problem with that. But in this context, he became their enemy for preaching Christian liberty to these Judaizers, to these legalists. Imagine that. And as I got to thinking about that, I said, man, that sure makes sense. Because as a pastor of almost, not, not quiet, but almost 15 years now, as a pastor during that time, I really began to think about all the people that I'd lost through the years. And I've lost quite a many. I mean, it's, it seems like as fast as they come, sometimes they leave. And that just seems to be the way that it goes. If I had, through the years, if I had kept everybody that I lost, I'd have a mega church by now. And, uh, but what I found amazing as I reminisced on my own pastoral experience, uh, I'm not going to say that it never happened, but almost never did I lose somebody because I was too extreme on an issue. I almost never lost somebody because I was too hard on dress standards or too hard against homosexuality. I don't think I ever lost anybody because I was that extreme person at the abortion clinic preaching out there or preaching at a gay pride parade. Or, you know, I might have lost some people due to that stuff, but I, if, they, if that was the case, they never told me. But I tell you, I have lost a lot of people because I was too, I wasn't strong enough on a certain issue. I wasn't hard enough on a certain issue. And it was, it was usually never like super biblical things. Like I, I, just running through a list in my own mind, uh, I, I've had people get upset with me because I wasn't strong enough on a King James Bible. I don't really understand even what that means because I preach it and I live it. I don't, I don't know how strong they want me to be. I don't know if they want me to say that it was doubly inspired like the biblical writers from thousands of years ago. I can't say that. Uh, if I said that, it means I don't even believe in preservation up to that point. Amen. And we can get into all that, but uh, I just I think that's kind of cultic language. You know, ignore any kind of character, ignore the family, ignore my reputation, ignore what I preach, ignore how I live. Bless God, I'm not strong enough in that area. I've had people get upset about that. Um, I've had people get upset with me over, you know, certain music that was done in the church. And I'm talking about crazy stuff. Like, I had a guy sitting in his truck in my driveway. I was standing outside. He was in the truck with the window down. Had a guy give me a good earful about can, what they call canned music. You know, what, what they mean by that is there, there's no instruments involved. Somebody is singing with a background track <laughs> as if, you know, the Bible's against that. And I'm talking about said that, I mean, was upset. This guy didn't go to my church. He went to another church with a good pastor that I know. And he told me that he left the church because they sang canned music. Well, I found out not long after that, the same man was beating his wife and ended up leaving his wife and children for somebody else. I mean, you see what happens when you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel? Most everybody I've met that was that mean about stupid stuff had skeletons in their closet. Because there ain't no grace in that. There's no God anywhere in that. And uh, I, I've had people upset because uh, we, we sang a, God forbid, we, we sang a patriotic song on the 4th of July weekend, you know. And I do understand that, man, there are some churches out there, they do make a God out of that. They, it's like the gospel of America. And I'm, I don't do that. I'm not for that. But to think that we can't be thankful for the things that God has done for us and all the sacrifice it took, I've got no problem with that. But I've had people get upset about that. Like we were having a worship service to the U.S. Constitution or something. Uh, I've had people get upset uh, because some of the music that was sang was, I guess, technically in the category of contemporary Christian music. But I, like I said last week, you know, if it's got a clear biblical message, if it truly honors Christ, 
if it's doctrinally sound and it's not so worldly that you can't hear or see all those other things, I'm, you know, I'm not the police on that kind of stuff. I think, it, I think it's silly. I heard somebody say one time that, uh, bless God, that they were so glad uh, that the only good thing about contemporary music was that it was temporary, that we wasn't going to have that in heaven. And I'm thinking, so we're going to have like, we were just going to sing Southern Gospel. Everybody just going to sing Southern Gospel or acapella or what, you know. I mean, we can get as crazy as we want to with that stuff. And it, it, there's nothing biblical about it. But, but somebody could take that one issue and look at a person and say, oh, well, they, they're not just singing strictly Southern Gospel. They're not doing this. or well, They don't even love God. That is, that is legalism 101, and it's silly. And it cost us good, godly relationships with good Christian people over stuff that God hadn't lost one ounce of sleep over. It's silly. Um, I've, I've had, um, I had, I've been bashed before because technically at Little Sandy, we were in air quotes, a Southern Baptist church. We supported our own independent missionaries. We were obviously autonomous because all Southern Baptist churches are autonomous. And, you know, we, we were kind of a black sheep. We gave 50 measly dollars per month to the local association. That church had been Southern Baptist since prior to the Civil War. And so we had reasons for wanting to stay in and try to make a difference from the inside. I had people upset about that. That is silly, folks. It's silly. I had one, talking about good relationships that get cost, uh, that we end up losing. Um, there, was a, um, there was an independent Baptist preacher on the other side of town that had moved his family from another state. And he hadn't been there but about a year and, man, the church just really did him wrong. They kind of voted him out behind his back. I mean, just did his family dirty. And here he was without a church, and he was in a place that wasn't his home. And, uh, you know, I was trying to reach out to him, be a friend to him. And um, we, had a, we had to go to L.A. for one of Leah's medical trips coming up. And um, anyway, I had just reached out to him, and I was encouraging him, you know, and, and trying to be a friend to him. And then I'd ask him if he would come and fill in for me a couple of Sundays while we were gone on this medical trip. And, man, he started stammering, and, and, and it's like he wanted to say something, but he, he just couldn't get it out. And he's like, well, I mean, but you're technically Southern Baptist, right? And I said, yeah, what's that supposed to mean? I knew what it meant. And he said, well, I, I just I don't know about preaching in the Southern Baptist church. You know, there are guys out there that would not preach anywhere but an independent, fundamental Baptist, you know, the whole list church. And <laughs> I, don't know where, I don't know whether it was the old brand of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I get those confused in situations like that. <laughs> but he goes, I said, let me ask you this. I said, do you have any uh, moral complaints about my life? Do I have any sin in my life that I need to repent of or publicly confess or that would disqualify me from the ministry? Oh, no, no, no. I know your reputation. I know all that. Well, is there any error in doctrine that I'm preaching? Any heresies that I need to be rebuked for? Oh, no, 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 no. I know, I know where you stand on all that. I said, so what's the problem? He said, well, I just, it would just make me feel so uncomfortable. I just don't know why. And I said, you want me to tell you why it makes you uncomfortable? I think it was the old Brandon now that I think about it. <laughs> I said, you want to know what makes you uncomfortable? I said, the fact that you're so stinking scared of what the brethren would say about it. That's what your problem is. I said, Proverbs says, the fear of man brings forth a snare, and that is your only... I said, you got nothing biblical, you got nothing doctrinal, you got nothing immoral. All you've got is that somebody in a suit and tie somewhere told you you shouldn't do that. And so he's like, well, you might be right. I said, I am right. And I said, by the way, while we're on the subject... Yeah, it was definitely the old Brandon. <laughs> I said, by the way, while we're on the subject... It's amazing that you mentioned that you don't preach in Southern Baptist Church because I said, I've been at the abortion clinic for a long time. Now, I ain't never seen you preach out there either. I said, I've been at every gay pride event from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham over the last couple of years. I ain't seen you out there either. I said, you must have something against doing that too. And I said, you know what your problem is? I said, you only want to preach to people who already think exactly the way that you do. And I said, you don't want to reach anybody. You don't want to change anybody's life. You don't want to stir the pot. You just want people to clap and say amen and nod their head at everything that you say. And you ain't doing the world a bit of good. That's what you're doing. We could have had a great relationship. 
I tried to reach out to him. I tried to love him. And it, the stupid, legalistic junk kept him from being... A, he was afraid to be associated with me because of that stupid junk. And yet we're still doing it. And so, yeah, um, this is the kind of stuff that Paul was dealing with. I understand that this is, you know, 2,000 years ago. It was different issues, but it was the same mentality. And so, uh, you know, I, I can say this too, and I've got to get to point two. Y'all said, thank God he didn't have three points today. <laughs> but let me say this. Some of the greatest, godliest friends that I have are not in my circle. I, I'm strange. I'm, <laughs> I've been a black sheep in the IFB for a long time, and that's okay. I don't, I don't wear that as a badge of honor. I don't try to stir nothing up, but I do not give a rip what the brethren think. And, uh, you know, God had to break me of that. I wasn't always like, see, I can say these things because I've been there. Um, you, you know, Jeff Foxworthy used to say, I can talk about rednecks because I are one. <laughs> I can talk about legalists because I, I used to be one. And God had to break me about that. He really used a lot of things in my life to get me out of my echo chamber, and I realized how wrong I had been about certain things. And if you ever do any real-world evangelism, any real-world outreach, you'll learn a few things. Uh, but, but some of the greatest friends I have, just going down the list without naming anybody, but um, some of my greatest friends, I've got two preacher friends I can think of right now that are uh, non-denominational preachers. They're, they're not crazy. They're not out there in the charismatic world. They're good guys, but we would obviously differ on some things. And I'm telling you, I could call those guys right now. They would do anything for me. I'm talking about anything. And the way that they helped us and befriended us during this time with Leah, it is just unmatchable compared to what some of the brethren I thought would have helped us or prayed for us or at least sent us a text message. Uh, I had one of them this week. I mean, it was a tough week for me, man. Sometimes it just hits me like a ton of brick and the weight just hits me. I had one of them just text me. I hadn't talked to him in months. He texted me and said, man, I, I just had you on my heart and I love you, man. You're, you're a light for the Lord and, and I just I pray for you, you know. He's not an independent, fundamental preacher. He doesn't, I mean, but I tell you what, he loves God. He's got the gospel, right? I'm not about to run him down like I've got it all figured out. Um, I, I think about, um, uh, I, I've, got a, I've got some Reformed Baptist friends that would do anything for me. Um, when I was at the abortion clinic, you know, we used to go out there every week. Sometimes we go multiple times a week. Go out there and preach on the sidewalk, try to reach the women and, I know this is a surprise, but it's hard to get a lot of people to line up to do that. Pastors, preachers, whatever. We had hundreds of churches in Tuscaloosa County. I don't know that I ever saw another pastor out there. It was really sad. But one of the, one of the main things that really bothered me about having, you know, when Leah got sick, and especially when we had to leave, is we live 45 minutes from everywhere, including the abortion clinic. And, man, she just got so sick, I couldn't leave. I couldn't. I just had to shut a lot of things down that I was doing. And I was so worried about, well, God, who's going to go out there to the abortion clinic? Who's going to preach? Who's going to do all that? And would you know, it just so happened, there was a lay preacher from a little Reformed Baptist church a, a whole county away that saw some of our videos at the abortion clinic on the Internet. And he got so convicted by that, he said, you know what, I'm not doing enough. I need to be out there. And would you know the very first week that I had to miss the abortion clinic for Lynn being sick, that was his first time out there preaching on the sidewalk where I had stood. He, he's been there ever since. That's been over two years ago. He's been there just about every week. And uh, in fact, uh, the Bible I'm preaching from this morning, he gave it to me as a parting gift when I left Alabama. I bet this Bible cost $200. <laughs> he's not even a King James man, but he made sure it was King James for me. And, uh, you know, I'm telling you, that, that's... That's my brother in Christ. I mean, he's the one getting in the ditch with me. I wouldn't give one wooden nickel for some stinking, lazy, scared-to-death, spineless jellyfish of an IFB preacher that would never get out of the comfort of his pulpit to come do something like that. I would take my Reformed friend over that any day of the week, and you can mark that down in the Bible. You say, well, you don't like it. Well, I don't really care, amen. I'm telling you, I'm tell I ain't got time for it. This country is going to hell in a handbasket, and we're still arguing over nothing, over nothing. And, you know, I've even had talking about, um, which I'm, I'm getting into my other point. I can't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there in a minute. But uh, th listen, 
there's, a, there's some holiness ladies that, once again, they're not crazy. They're not out there. They're good people. We would differ on some issues. There's no doubt about that. But, um, you know, I'm telling you, they are, they are some of the most gifted singers that I have ever seen in my life. The first time they open their mouth and you hear that first note, you know that is a gift from God. You can't teach what they can do. And they've sang all over the country. We had them come sing at our church. I had holiness women sing in my church. And what's so funny is I just didn't tell anybody. And some of the brethren that came, they were like, amen, bless God, woo. And I thought, boy, if they just knew, you know. <laughs> but I'm telling you, they have been a friend to us. When, uh, when we were out there in Los Angeles the first time, we were there a month. And we had been there about three weeks away from our kids. And they came to the place. One of them, one of the ladies, her daughter was visiting a college in, in California. And they, they were in the area. I mean, they weren't close, but they were, they were in California. And they drove out of their way just to come where we were staying at and just to pray with us and love on us. And they put some money in our pocket before they left, friend. They don't have a lot of money. Friend, those are my friends. Those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, listen, I'm not being ecumenical. I'm not saying that we can yoke up with anybody. I'm not even saying there's certain things that I would allow in this church from good Christian people. There's some things that we can't allow in here. I understand that. But I hope you understand that I think we've been divided over way too many things and we had not been united by the right things. And um, we miss out on a lot of these things when we do that. I would say some of the greatest preachers, commentators, expositors, missionaries, and Christians of our day are not IFB, KJVO, pre-trib, the whole list. I know that for a fact. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we, just need to be, we just need to be real about a lot of this stuff. And uh, as I said, this is the type of stuff that really upsets a lot of people. Uh, I, I could have preached against adultery or any of that stuff today, and nobody would bat an eye. But this is the stuff that really gets people tighter than a banjo string. Now, let me say this. Uh, we miss out on so many wonderful Christian relationships and fellowships uh, when we allow the Judaizers to poison our minds and turn everything into a first-tier issue. Everything to the legalist is on a tier one level with the deity of Christ and, um, you know, the virgin birth and all those kind of things. And we need to strive for the unity in the body of Christ. And I would say this, and I really don't have time to go through this. I'm already late as it is. But uh, theological triage is something that would be really good to study in your own time. There's good charts on it. Some of them are better than others. But it, it is a great list. It's a great kind of foundational thing to look at as far as how far a fellowship goes with certain people. For, like, for instance, tier one would be gospel issues. You know, we can't yoke up with the Mormons. They got a false Christ, a false gospel, false authority, false everything. We can't say they're our brothers in Christ. They ain't. You know, I don't even think we could say that about the Catholics. You know, the Catholics, they get a lot right, and we could be thankful for their uh, philanthropic work and their work with abortion. We can be thankful for that. But, I, you know, if you really believe their doctrine, I don't see how you can be saved, especially not for any period of time and stay in it, if you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, we can't yoke up with the, the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses. We can't do that. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. That's a tier one issue, but there are other issues that... You know, good Christian people can disagree on and not lose their minds about it. The loss of legalism includes the loss of many great relationships and causes unnecessary division within the body of Christ. So we see it cost us good Christian relationships. Secondly, and I'm done, and I'm not going to take near as much time here, I don't think. But the second thing we lose with legalism is great ministry opportunities. Look at verse 17 again. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now, and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Now, Paul said the Judaizers made them zealous for the wrong things but they should be zealous for the right things. Legalism is always overzealous for the wrong things. That is a hallmark of legalism. It misses the bigger point. Legalism sees the letter of the law, but misses the heart of the law. And one of the greatest condemnations that Christ had for the Pharisees was in Matthew 23, 
verses 23 and 24. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of men and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone, you blind guides which strain at a gnat, that means to choke on a gnat and to swallow a camel. Instead of serving alongside Paul, they were actively fighting against him. Listen, I would have missed out. If I had stayed up under that yoke and snare of the brethren, I would have missed out on so many great gospel opportunities if I had been worried about what the brethren thought. And just a couple that I jotted down, and I really am coming in for a landing here. But I thought, even, even the abortion outreach. You know, I talked to Baptist pastors who would not even go out there because they were afraid that somebody might associate them with the Catholics and the Pentecostals. You almost couldn't go out there on a day where there wouldn't be at least a few Catholics and or a few Pentecostals out there like, well, I just don't want somebody to see me out there and, and think that I'm, I'm associated with them. Really? That's your reason for not preaching the gospel in an abortion clinic? Fear of the brethren. Stinking scared. That's what that is. And I, could, I just couldn't believe it. Maybe I should have known better. But... um. I'll say this, as I said about the Catholics, I don't, you know, their doctrine's so off, they just got a false gospel. This is a different category than what I'm fixing to say. But there was four Pentecostal ladies that would be out there a lot when I would go preaching. And there would be times, God bless them, they would be the only ones out there. They wouldn't have anybody else. There wouldn't be a man out there. And I tell you, those escorts and those people there, they were a lot rowdier when there wasn't any men there. And anyway, I remember one day, I'll never forget this as long as I live. I went out there, and they were out there, and man, it was raining cats and dogs. I'm talking about it was coming down. And there, I, I bet there must have been 50 women there that day to get an abortion. There were so many people there. They had a porch area, probably about the size of this middle section of chairs here. And there was probably 25 people outside waiting to go in. And they're not, I was standing from here to the back wall from where they were. And I was just preaching to them. I was giving them the gospel. I was warning them that one day they would have to stand before a holy God and give an account for what they were about to do. And, and uh, they had begged me, before I started preaching, I was, I was praying, I was thinking about what to do every day is different. And they, those Pentecostal ladies begged me to preach. They said, please, Pastor Brandon, please preach to them. And so I began preaching and I kind of got into what I was doing, and of course, you have to be loud in a situation like that. And I looked down. Those four women were face down in the mud. Face down, begging God to save somebody. And I thought, I wish I could get some of those holier-than-thou, legalistic, spineless jellyfish. I, they, would ne- they wouldn't be caught dead doing such a thing. Were they wrong about some things? Yeah. Would I let them preach in my church? No. But I tell you, they love God, and there's something to be learned from that. One of those women uh, became really good friends with us. And, and I tell you, this is how you change the narrative. Because in, in her church, she was always taught that Baptists were just liberals. They believed in eternal security. They believed in once saved, always saved. Let's, you know, Jesus paid for our sin. Let's get our money's worth. They believed that we taught a license to sin. And as I would preach and I got to know her a little more and she would begin to ask questions, she said, you know, you, you don't make any sense. I said, you know what? My wife tells me the same thing all the time. But she said, I said, what do you mean specifically? She said, well, why are you here? I said, because Christ commands us to go out and to all the world and preach the gospel. And she starts interviewing me about, well, do you drink? No. Do you smoke? No. Do you? I mean, she's asking me all these questions. She said, I don't understand. She said, I was always taught that because you believe in eternal security that you just did what you wanted to do. I said, well, somebody told you wrong. And I said, what do you think about me? She said, I don't think you have a liberal bone in your body. So I began to instruct her about what the Bible says about the gospel and how we can't lose our salvation and we're in the palm of His hand and I could see the light bulbs coming on and she started coming to our church, driving 45 minutes every Sunday just to be at our church and now she's in a Baptist church because somebody she met on the street taught her something she'd never heard before. That's how you change the narrative. Oh, I don't want to be caught seen with those Pentecostal women. Oh, God forbid that 
One of the brethren should think I'm out there with the Catholics. Fooey. I got a Greek word for that. It's bologna. <laughs> I like my way of doing it better than their way of not doing it. That's how I feel about that. Um, I thought about the gay pride outreach. You know, I've had, I've had some that didn't want to go because they, somebody might think they were actually there for the parade. <laughs> You know, what's amazing to me, when I went out there preaching, hand out track, it's amazing how many church people I saw out there. Not from my church, but let me tell you this. There's a pastor, Baptist pastor I know, not far from where I grew up. I saw his sister and her children at the Gay Pride Parade. And uh, she saw me too, but she knew I was there. And I knew why she wasn't there. So I don't, I don't care about all that. But it's, you know, the radio ministry. I've had men tell me they didn't want to be on the radio because, well... There's a Methodist church on it this time, or there's a woman preacher on it that time, and I don't, I'm so afraid that somebody might think I'm associated with them. Just hush. I mean, y'all, I, y'all pray for me. I, I think the old Brennan's coming out now. I just, maybe God will bless it. I don't know. But I mean, you know, with me, I've had so many different opportunities through the years. It's really, I didn't ask for it, didn't try to get it, it just happened. Uh, due to the abortion ministry, Due to the radio ministry and due to writing my book, you know, about finding my mom, between those three things, I had opportunities that I never would have had before. Y'all, I've been invited to preach at Presbyterian churches. I've been invited to preach at uh, Pentecostal churches. I've been invited to preach at Methodist churches and non-denominational churches. And every time I really had pray to see what God would have me to do, and I realized, you know what, why does it matter where your feet are standing when you're preaching truth? I didn't alter the message at all. And every time I preached the gospel before I got down, I didn't, it didn't change who I was. Y'all, I even, believe it or not, and I really had to pray about this. Because of the abortion ministry, I got invited to preach at a, at a pro-life rally at a Catholic church. How many Baptist pastors have preached in that situation? I really had to pray about that. It was in a fellowship hall. It was, it was like just a central meeting place. It wasn't an actual service. And I thought, you know what, they're going to hear why I'm in this abortion ministry, and they're going to hear the gospel while I'm here. And I, t- I gave them my testimony about growing up in the Church of Christ and how I had trusted my baptism to save me and how it was an empty ordinance, and that didn't save me, and I preached the gospel to them with their priest sitting right here. <laughs> oh, well, I don't want to be associated with that. Well, you just keep doing nothing. It's like uh, Coach Nick Saban for Alabama. Somebody, he recently told somebody, if you don't want to be a leader, sell ice cream. He said, if you don't want to ever make anybody mad, go sell ice cream. But if you're going to be a leader and do something, you're going to make folks mad. That's what Paul was doing. Uh, if we're scared of being marked out by the law dogs for not being just like them, it's going to cost us some great ministry opportunities. There's definitely more to be said about this later on. But I'll just close by saying, don't be a slave to legalism, either in salvation or service, or Christian fellowship. It'll cost you friends and it'll cost you great opportunities. Would you stand this morning?